How can we advance the field of additive manufacturing by broadening the range of materials that can be used for 3D printing? Dr Kate Black is developing new techniques to print with materials like metals and ceramics to do exactly that. In this episode, we talk about her background in chemistry and how that knowledge affects the way she approaches engineering research questions today, her incredibly inspiring academic journey, and why she is passionate about encouraging underrepresented groups to consider a career in engineering. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you do, don't forget to share and subscribe to the Liverpool Scientific wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Today I'm joined by Dr Kate Black, Senior Lecturer in the School of Engineering and Head of the Advanced Manufacturing Production and Research Facility here at Liverpool. Kate, thanks so much for being on the show. No problem, thank you. So Kate, your research is focused on developing new 3D printing solutions for the manufacture of smart metallic and ceramic devices. And more specifically, you look at the development of novel reactive organometallic inks. So can you tell us a bit more about this technology that you're developing and why it's important? Yeah, definitely. So although I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Engineering, my background's actually in chemistry, and that's where the, the novelty lies in these, these new processes. And 3D printing, or how we would call it, additive manufacturing, has been around for well, many decades now. It used to be called um, rapid prototyping. And mm-hmm. we, we made components that were just to see whether the, the, the fit and the form were okay, but really they didn't have a functional use and they were made out of plastics. And not until probably around the 1990s, you start to see things being printed out of metals and then ceramics. Mm-hmm. And we had a kind of a, a lull um, for a good 10 years really, where we did lots of good things, printing lots of components, but we never really made any more advancements in particularly in the materials. And if we're going to start printing um, a whole range of components and devices for lots of different applications, then we really need to, to improve the, the materials that we, we print them out of. And, and that's what me and my team uh, do at Liverpool, is mm-hmm. try and broaden that palette of materials that can be processed by, by 3D printing. And if we can do that, we can start printing bespoke um, components for a whole range of of sectors so we do work with the automotive industry aerospace lots of work with biomedical applications so it's kind of limitless really of where we can use 3d printing but what has been holding us back is the choice of materials that we can 3d print but also the the speed at which we can print them so it's a fallacy that 3d printing is a really fast process loads of people say that to me when you you meet people at parties, they go, oh, yeah, you can print this, you can print that. That's simply just not, not true at the moment. <laughs> uh, and that's because of the, the cost, the speed and, and the materials. So it's those three things that are really limiting 3D printing or additive manufacturing. And, it, and it's stopping it from reaching its potential. So what we do at Liverpool is we've developed um, a new printing process, which is similar to existing 3D printing, but it's more about the materials that we can process by, uh, by this um, printing process. And we do that by not just looking at it from a, a mechanical or physical lens. We do it through um, looking at it through chemistry. And can we control the materials at the molecular level to give us the, the, the components that we want once we've printed them out? So 
the technology we use is based on a, an inkjet printing process. And this inkjet printing process is very similar to the printing process that you see in inkjet printers in the office or at home when you're printing mm. out your, your work and the Word documents. But the, the inks that we put into them, or what we would call binders that we put into them, are quite different. And they're made up of metals or ceramics, again, depending on what your application is. And we combine, combine these binders with a powder bed. And when you combine the binders with a powder bed, we can get 3D structures. And we can control things at what we would call a, a, a voxel level. So that's like a, a 3D pixel, if you like. Mm -hmm. So each one of those voxels could be a different material. And that simply hasn't been done anywhere before in, in, in the world. Because the, the, the people who have been working in 3D printing and additive manufacturing have, uh, have really come at it from a, a mechanical point of view or an engineering point of view and they've not brought the the chemistry or the material science into it as much as they they could do and I think really why we've we've done so well is because my background as I said before is is a chemist my my undergraduate my their degree and my PhD is in chemistry and it and it's bringing those different disciplines to try and tackle challenges and, and bring bring new new technologies to the forefront so I don't yeah. know whether that answers <laughs> everything. Yeah. That was absolutely perfect. And and yeah, definitely. So so as I said really before we started recording, I think with interdisciplinary work and especially interdisciplinary science, you do see these approaching these problems with a completely new from or from a completely new perspective yeah. and, and by having lots of different skills that are learned from these different kind of subjects whether it's mm -hmm. chemistry or engineering you end up with a much more refined approach where you've kind of considered several different aspects which you might not have done if you just came from an engineering background like you said you know the engineers are approaching it from a very mechanical point of view whereas as a chemist yeah. you are a lot more on the molecular level um, and, and I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating fascinating what you're doing mm -hmm. so so what kind of materials are you actually working with so so the process is called binder jet printing mm -hmm. uh, and it uses the inkjet heads to print essentially a glue onto a powder bed and wherever that glue goes onto the powder bed and um, the powder sticks together and wherever mm -hmm. it doesn't then you've got loose powder and you can and you do this layer by layer and you literally grow the part out of the powder bed uh, and people have been doing this for, for, for many decades, but they've been using polymer glues mm -hmm. to, to bind these powders. And the powders could be a metal or a ceramic or a polymer. And it's an incredibly fast process because we use an inkjet head. So you can think about how fast it is to print like graphical printing when you see newspapers being printed. Mm -hmm. These are meters per second of components we could print um, in, in the future because it's a, a, a printing process. But the materials that we've been looking at mainly are, are metals, things like copper, titanium, um, aluminium. Uh, and these are all used in the aerospace and the automotive industry. Um, but also things like um, hip implants or knee implants. So there could be titanium implants. And we've also recently started to, to, to look at ceramics. So things like silicon carbide, tungsten mm -hmm. carbide. These can be used for heat sinks, uh, wind turbines. There's a whole you know, myriad of, of different applications. 
that, that we look at, but we, we don't really look at polymers because that's been done to death. Lots of people do that. <laughs> um, and there's lots of great solutions out there for, for polymers. Um, but we mainly focus on, on, on metals and ceramics. And these are being able to print components with high integral strength, high density, uh, so that they can be used for proper end applications. Mm. And the, the automotive one is a particular interest to us because although they do use 3D printing, it's usually for prototyping, seeing whether things look right or whether they fit right. And they, they haven't used the existing metal 3D printing processes because um, they're very expensive. So yeah. you would find... So people like the Formula One teams, McLaren, Renault, people like that, they use metal 3D printing because they've got the, the luxury of the money to, mm -hmm. to invest in it, but also they don't need to print as many. And, and what me and my team are trying to do is, is take 3D printing and move it to mass manufacture. And that's kind of a, an oxymoron in the additive manufacturing world at the moment <laughs> because, because 3D printing doesn't equate to mass manufacture. You're normally talking maybe a one-off or... or a couple of hundred at most and, mm -hmm. a, and again it's very costly because existing metal 3d printing techniques normally use lasers uh, they're very expensive they're they're costly they take time to to make these components so most people think it's fast it's not a fast process the actual designing and producing the digital uh, input that goes in the printers is is, is faster mm -hmm. but um they, they need a lot of post-processing so many people think you just press the print button you know go away for an hour or so bob's your uncle you've got this metal <laughs> component um, and you, you do have a metal component but for them to be used in a, a real life application they need some heat treatment steps or polishing steps to make them them ready and our process is trying to to eradicate all of those post-processing steps. Because if you can remove those steps, you can start to, to lower the, the thermal budget of the process and, and the time as well that you can turn around components. So then it becomes much more economically viable for people like the aerospace or the automotive industry to, to use those. And if we can do that, just imagine the types of devices that and, and applications we could produce, the products we could produce. Because each one of those printed components could be a completely different component and bespoke mm -hmm. to the customer. So you're not having to do them in, in batches where they're all identical. Each one of them that you're printing off could be, um, could be bespoke and could be um, individual to, your, to suit your individual needs of your customer. And I think that's what's the exciting bit about it. Definitely. And I think, you know, what you're working on with with this additive manufacture really does have the potential to completely revolutionise the manufacturing industry. So so how far do you think we are away from from a future where additive manufacture makes up a significant proportion of how components are manufactured in industries such as the automotive and aerospace industries like you mentioned? Yeah, I think it's been growing and it's and it's had a it's been growing continuously for probably about 20 years now. Mm -hmm. And and it's slowed slightly. And that is because of the those issues that I mentioned at the beginning of, of the speed and the, and the types of materials that you can process. Mm -hmm. Now, there's an exi existing technology called binder jet printing that can print metal and ceramic components pretty fast. But because they're bound with a polymer glue, 
they present issues with the actual uh, functionality of the part that you've printed. You, you imagine you don't want a metal component that's full of polymer inside it, full of plastic inside it. So they need to heat treat that to get that polymer out. Mm -hmm. And that's where your issues come in. So you start to see shrinking and warpage of, the, of your part, warping of the part and shrinkage of the part. But you also are left with holes in your component. So you don't want a metal component 33,000 feet up in the air that's full of holes and defects. <laughs> it's, it's not, not really. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to do its job properly. So although it's fast, the end product isn't, isn't viable for us. So what we've done is we, we've taken that uh, polymer out and we've replaced them with metal and uh, ceramic binders. So you're binding and infiltrating that powder bed with, with build material, with real material. One, it stops all those holes. Two, you don't need the, the D-bind step. You don't need to get rid of the polymer because there isn't any. Mm -hmm. And then you don't get the shrinkage. So you can start to print very fast components with the right integrity, the right uh, structural um, properties and mechanical properties that you need for them to be used in real land applications. And, and people have started to do this all over the world, but, but we believe at Liverpool that we, we found the, the sort of missing piece of the, the jigsaw, if you like, to be able to, to see um, 3D printing go into to, to mass manufacture. So what I probably haven't said to you um, before this, this podcast is that although this research has been done at Liverpool, we're now exploiting that through a, a spin-out company called Meta Additive, and they're, they're based over in Stoke-on-Trent, is where I'm actually sat um, here today speaking to you. And we're taking that technology so that we can then take it to, to the masses and take it to these automotive and um, aerospace um, companies. So we're hoping, all being well, in the next couple of years, you'll start to see a big change in, in additive manufacturing and how we, we print and manufacture ceramics and, uh, and metals. And of course, it will take time for people to uptake this new technology. There needs to be processes that go through and um, the, the legal issues and testing mm -hmm. and make sure that they're, they're still okay. But I think you'll, you'll start to see a, a big difference over the next five to, to 10 years. And of course, there will always be, I mean, additive manufacturing will not take over um, the whole of manufacturing. Yeah, of course. There will always be your, your conventional manufacturing will always have a place. But it's, it's more about opening up the avenues that you can use additive manufacturing in, but perhaps maybe augmenting conventional manufacturing with additive manufacturing. So it's not a, an either or. Mm -hmm. I think it's still they'll run alongside each other and, and start to merge in with each other. This is all I mean your research is absolutely incredible and it's so exciting that that you know you are able to implement this technology in a new company as you know coming from a physics background we are very much focused on the hard science and and mm -hmm. I've realized over the past few few months doing this podcast engineering is all about using that science to then go go off and, and develop this new technology and also you know start companies and and you know have startups kind of running alongside the work which I just think is amazing because you're really <laughs> seeing that technology applied commercially and and you know going out in into the market which I just think is absolutely fascinating mm. um but now, you know, despite working in the School of Engineering today, like you mentioned, your undergraduate degree was actually in chemistry uh, from the University of Wales. Mm -hmm. So what was it about chemistry that appealed to you? Yeah, good question. So I think right from a very young age, I really wanted to know how things 
worked? Why, you know, why is the sky blue? Why is, you know, what soil made out of? All sorts mm -hmm. of weird questions I used to irritate my mum and dad with. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think for me, although I loved, you know, physics and, and, and biology, for me, chemistry seemed to, to bring all that alive and answer a lot of the questions that I had. So it was out of curiosity, really, that I, uh, that I did chemistry. But I think now working in an engineering department, I didn't, I didn't really know what engineering was when I was, uh, you know, primary school and secondary school. Mm -hmm. um, to, uh, particularly being a woman as well, it was always seemed like, oh, it was a male thing. Um, you, mm -hmm. you know, build bridges and cars. And although I found that all interesting, I didn't really know what engineering was. And I think if I'd had my time again, I might have done an engineering degree, but then would I have been doing what I'm doing now? Probably not. Um, <laughs> Hindsight is a wonderful thing. <laughs> it is. And, and also, I've said it before, but I'll go back to it. I think why we're doing such good work at Liverpool is because we've brought one discipline, that was chemistry, and brought it into engineering to solve a, a, another problem. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's by joining all those different disciplines together that I think you do... That's where the magic happens, where you make progress and you, you bring in new technologies, you solve problems. And, and, and that's the heart of engineering is that, yes, we've got all the sciences to do blue sky research, but then engineering takes that uh, fundamental sciences and applies it to solve problems. That's what engineers do. Mm -hmm. And it's although it's really interesting to find out how things work, it's also really good to be able to take it out of a lab and to be able to hold something in your hand and say, I made that and it's going to make a difference in somebody's life or, you know, you're going to be making real things that the real world will use rather than keeping in a lab or making something the size of a postage stamp and that's about it, you know, and, <laughs> and, and not, <laughs> not saying that that's a, it's a bad thing because we do need people working on fundamental science and fundamental research and, and that's that's how our research has uh, progressed and how we've managed to be able to make a spin-out company. So it, it, again, it's not an either or, you, you need all of those and, and having some people that can sit across all of those disciplines and, and take a, an overview, a bigger picture. I think that's something that I've, I've always liked doing. So although I started out in chemistry, it's been nice to, to translate that to other disciplines. So my PhD, was in chemistry, but also half of it was in material science. And then on the material science side brought me into engineering. So yeah, it's not been a, a, a straightforward or purist uh, approach to things. It's, it's um, you know, taking inspiration from, from lots of different disciplines really to, to get where we have. Yeah, and I think you're totally right. It, it is, the fundamental science is necessary to be able to make this technology and that's why I think the physical sciences and engineering you know do go hand in hand because you've got people working on this quite abstract theoretical fundamental science and then mm -hmm. the engineers come along and they pick it up and go right okay so you know how to do this how can we make something that's going to have a real world impact and I, I think definitely for me it's it's in my career aspirations it's going to be important to have real world impacts of my work you know that there's yeah, lots of fantastic theoretical research going on um in, in lots of different disciplines but i think especially at the moment given the big challenges we're facing with things mm -hmm. like climate change and 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 you know real 
huge problems like that we need to be looking at how to address them by using the fundamental science and not just sitting in a lab all day but going out into the real world and going how, how can I use this science to make yeah, people's we, lives better and we, we still we still need those people of we course. need all sorts of mindsets you know and and you're talking about you know your theoretical stuff in physics we don't know when that's going to start playing a bigger role in lots of other applications mm. and what I've found interesting over the years of me working as an academic and, a, and a, a researcher is that you find the solutions to things in the most strangest places. <laughs> um, and, and that's why I urge, you know, my students that we shouldn't work in these silos. I don't think it's, it's, it's always helpful to label people as they're a chemist, they're a physicist, they're mm. an engineer. Yes, we, we, we do need these names and it, it helps to structure things. But to, to, to solve the big remaining questions and challenges of the world, we need to look outside and bring in, and not, and not actually not just science and engineering. There's lots of other disciplines that I think we can feed off mm -hmm. and, and help us. And you know, even the arts, people think when you say the word creative, people think of arts, humanities, perhaps. You don't think of science and engineering. And I think that's something that needs to be changed because we can take cues and inspiration from from all of these different disciplines and and scientists and engineers are creative we create new things we create you know um new devices new applications new products for things and and if we stick in our little silos and label ourselves i think well we don't progress as well as we could do definitely but i'm sure there are plenty of people out there that would disagree <laughs> disagree with me <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I take my inspiration from, from lots of things, not just from science and engineering, you know, uh, from reading, from looking at arts, talking to historians, uh, you know, all, all sorts of different things gives you little light bulb moments where you, where you find the solutions to things. So, yeah, I think it's important to keep fundamental research going, but I think we also need those types of people that can sit and bridge across the, the disciplines and see the, the, the bigger picture things so that we can... We can take them out to, to solve real world problems. Definitely. I mean, the world is a very big place. There's lots of very interesting subjects out there. And if we were just confined to our little corner of the world, it would be very boring indeed. So I, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> and I think this is why, you know, podcasts like this are, are, are great because it helps to communicate our, our science and engineering to, to, to the masses. And you don't know who's listening. You know, there might be somebody who says, oh, right, we could solve that problem or we've seen something similar. Exactly. I mean, I'm even though I'm a physicist, I'm so curious about what's happening in life sciences and engineering and maths. Like, and there's, it, it, there's so much cool stuff going on. Even if you don't have a background in that subject, you yeah. you, you can see that the research that that certain you know disciplines is going on in certain disciplines. Sorry, is is mm -hmm. just brilliant and it's so interesting to learn about. So, but I'm I'm glad that you <laughs> you think the podcast is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, so going back to your career and, and how you got to where you are today. After your undergraduate degree, you then completed a master's again at the University of Wales. And mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, you then joined the University of Liverpool to study for a PhD, partly in material science, like you said. So what was the focus of your doctoral work? Okay, good question. Um, it made it sound so straightforward. It was a it was a slow start, let's say, okay. <laughs> to my, my academic career, a very slow start. 
maybe a non-starter at one point <laughs> but we can, we can come back to that but my PhD yeah my PhD was was working on a material called gallium nitride you see it in um, traffic lights it's used in all sorts of different applications and it was about whether we could deposit this material onto silicon chips and okay. the stuff that you get in your mobile phones or your, you know, your laptops, your computers. Uh, and, and really it was about trying to develop this material and find a process of where we could deposit it onto silicon chips so that mm-hmm. we could have it in for integrated circuits, all sorts of stuff. So that's what my PhD was about. So quite, quite different to what I'm doing now. But the chemistries that I used in my PhD and used in that area, I now use to in in 3d printing and that was the first time it had been done before so it's taking chemistries that would use for one application and apply it to another application or another technology okay wow i mean that's that sounds incredibly interesting and and i guess as well it's like you said you learn these skills and it kind of doesn't really matter the exact problem that you're trying to solve but you, you're learning all the, these different techniques and and how to work with different chemicals and you can then take that you know I guess that's you know what the point of a PhD is is to learn yeah. about how to do good research and how to you know conduct uh, good science I guess at the end of the day yeah, definitely, definitely so you mentioned as well that you maybe maybe didn't consider academia to start off with oh or? no no <laughs> so I did consider okay okay <laughs> I did consider academia it's whether academia considered me basically. right okay <laughs> so um so I'm dyslexic and I, I struggled at school I struggled okay. with exams and there was a point where I was told that I would never go to university <laughs> that was the comment that was made back in the 1990s (laughs) yeah it was brutal yeah my I got asked one day by uh, the educational psychologist that was seeing me for my being dyslexic and he said to me oh okay you know your GCSEs are are coming to the end now you're saying that you want to do it what do you actually want to want to do and I wanted to do a degree in philosophy believe it or not because I liked asking questions Mm -hmm. why did this work why they you know and, and he looked at me horrified and he said to me, Kate, you know, I always wanted to be a racing driver. I will never be a racing driver. You will never go to university, oh, is what he said to goodness. me. Oh, goodness. I can't believe um, that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's quite shocking that they, those things happened. And they probably still happen to this day, unfortunately. But I, I didn't give up. Uh, oh, yeah, here a, you are today, you yeah, know. <laughs> so I ignored that uh, pearls of wisdom from that guy. <laughs> and, uh, and I plodded on. I, I, I was very lucky to have a supportive mum and dad that, you know, believed in me and said, no, we, we think that she can do this. And um, one of the reasons why I ended up in Bangor in North Wales is that they have the Dyslexia Institute there. So that's why I applied to go uh, and do chemistry there. Unfortunately, they did close it down two weeks uh, um, on my arrival. After oh, my no. arrival. Oh, yeah, that, that was a coincidence. So. <laughs> And and so, yeah, it wasn't smooth sailing, I've got to admit. I I failed all my A-levels, actually. I think this is quite good for for people to to hear, because I often often get people asking me, students asking me, you know, well, you know, it's easy for you, Dr. Black, you know, you've got your doctorate. I said, well, you know, funny you should say that. It it wasn't quite, you know, as um, plain sailing as as people thought. So I failed all my A-levels. 
Um, I just couldn't write them down, you know, in time. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. didn't have much coursework in those days. It was all under time conditions and exams. Mm -hmm. and it just didn't suit my way of, uh, of processing stuff. But I was very lucky. It was in the days where you used to go and have an interview um, to get into university. One of the professors at Bangor University said, you know, I see something in this, this student. I think she should come to, uh, to, to Bangor rang my mum up and said to me, it doesn't matter whether Kate fails, uh, all her A-levels, she's still got a place. My mum oh, didn't wow. tell me that. <laughs> she didn't tell me that, thankfully. But I, I turned up, I have a twin sister, non-identical twin sister, who's not dyslexic, not scientific at all, very uh, artsy and English and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and, and she did very well. Uh, I failed mine, but we both ended up going to Bangor. So she did linguistics in, uh, in oh, Bangor and I did chemistry. And so, yeah, they rang me up on the day of my results and said, don't worry, Kate, you've still got a place here if you'd like to come. So the kind of the rest is history. I mean, it was a, a little bit difficult for me to do my degree. But again, the, the, they saw something in me and said, OK, uh, I mean, I got a third in my degree. Um, again, because most of it was was a written exam. Mm -hmm. Yet when it was practical, I was getting, you know, firsts because. Yeah. It was it was how I learn is how I, I I I did things. So again, they said, right, I think you should do a master's, which was a, it started to creep towards more my way of doing things. So although there were some exams, there was a big long section in the summer where we had to do a, a project, and I really excelled at that. And so I finished my master's, my postgraduate master's, went back home to East Yorkshire for a bit. I thought, you know what, I'm going to apply for a PhD at Liverpool. I saw it you know what's the worst they're gonna say and again I've, you know it's, it's 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 down to hard work but also having those people that make a difference in your life that see you for who you are and mm -hmm. I had a great professor from chemistry professor Tony Jones who who saw something in me and I'll always be eternally grateful for him for for seeing that mm -hmm. and he said no you think you know you're the best candidate you you've, you've got the job and and I probably shouldn't say this, but my PhD was one of the easiest things I've ever done. Um, <laughs> because it was lab work, although yes, I had to write a big hefty thesis at the end. I could do that in stages. It wasn't under time constraints and it mm -hmm. really suited me. And I, I've kind of excelled really from, from, from there. So anybody out there listening, thinking that, you know, they have to get straight A's and first class, you know, it's, there's always a way, there's always a way. Uh, and to, to not give up, I'm living proof that it can be done. Honestly, Kate, that is so inspiring and amazing. I mean, you touched upon that everyone has different learning styles. And I think mm. a real issue with, with the, with well, with educational systems all over the world is that it's very much exam-based. And that, yes, there is getting to be more coursework, although when I was doing my A-levels, they just started switching back to 100% exams yeah. again. And I, I don't know if you've probably heard the saying, like, you know, if you examine an elephant on its ability to climb a tree, it's never going to do very well. And, <laughs> and it, it is, everyone learns very differently, whether you're, do, you, you, yeah. know, you have um, dyslexia or whether you don't some people suit exams and some people don't and and the fact that you've excelled at practical work I think just it, it highlights that you are a practical learner and mm -hmm. you know it must have been incredibly demoralizing to to 
have so much potential but just because of the certain way that you were assessed it just you know didn't suit you at all yeah no it wasn't there were many times where I was going to give up but again you know my mum in particular kept saying no keep on going keep on going and and it is it is hard I mean would I change my time if I have a time again probably not actually mm-hmm. because it's it's built up resilience mm-hmm. um it's made me see things in a different way and I've I've learned coping mechanisms so mm-hmm. and so I think there are a, there's a hell of a lot of people who will who will miss because of that structure mm-hmm. because of the way that we examine uh, students not just at university but also you know in school mm-hmm. and I'm a real advocate that we we do need change and we kind of beat out you know creativity out of students because of the way that we learn the the late Ken Robinson who recently died a a good scouser good Liverpoolian (laughs) and um and if you haven't listened to his TED talk I think it's the most uh, watched TED talk um in the history of of TED and he talks about creativity in this way of learning and and there's there's not just one way of learning and I think Mm -hmm. For me, I'm one of the lucky ones because I had people who watched out for me. I was in the right place at the right time. Yes, I didn't give up um, and I'm a hard worker and mm-hmm. I, I stuck at it. But I think there are people who were, who were slipping through the cracks and probably have a lot to, to offer, particularly in the world of science and engineering, where they can see things in, uh, from different lenses, from different guises. And, um, and we're missing those, I think. And we do our research the way we do and we've uh, succeeded so well because we have got a really good team that can see things from from different angles. And, you know, myself coming from from a, a different background. And I think we, we need more of that. Definitely. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I 100 percent agree. It is. It's a, it's a much more collaborative and I think enjoyable way of, of working when you have lots of different people from different backgrounds and it's not everyone just saying the same opinion or, or, or yeah, kind of yeah. solution to a problem over and over again because you've got some someone saying well actually how, why, why don't we try this you know this worked mm. for me when I did my PhD in biochemistry or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think yeah your career has been a real uh, it's just it's incredibly inspiring and I mean you know you, you mentioned plodding on earlier but after yeah. your PhD at Liverpool you you um, did a, a postdoctoral research position but you then actually joined the University of Cambridge as a research associate in the Centre for Advanced Photonics and Electronics um, and so here you were principally working on the development of novel materials for supercapacitors so firstly I mean you know given everything that you've just described you you got to Cambridge which is absolutely incredible but also supercapacitors sound really cool and like they're a bit sci-fi um so could you talk a little bit about what they actually are and and what your work was um focused on yeah so it was taking um research that we'd done at at liverpool Uh, Mm. so i worked in something called atomic layer deposition so as it sounds it makes very thin uh films of of materials Mm -hmm. and i previously said these can be used in um, your mobile phones and computers but Mm -hmm. what we were looking at supercapacitors were used they're kind of like a a, a battery if you like so they were used for handheld uh, vacuum cleaners for for dyson that's who we were working with okay and so you see that technology in there uh, today so instead of having to plug it into the wall you can charge it up and then you can do your vacuuming by hand no cords or anything like that then um, tethering you to the wall and that's mm-hmm. really what we were we were looking at can we start to, to deposit these materials to to make supercapacitors so 
that's how we got into that. That, that was good. That was interesting work. Um, and yeah, great to, to see a different um, university, a different city and different ways of working, really. Mm, um, yeah, I imagine I, it was it was quite different to Liverpool. As, yeah, not as, as friendly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I was really pleased to, to get to Cambridge because, you know, having spoken to you about my, my background, it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, plain sailing. So to get to somewhere like Cambridge w- was great. And I had a great t- time there while I was there. But I think... Yeah, I am, am going to say this. I think that what I saw, that having spent some time at Liverpool and then going to Cambridge, the amount of research and high quality research that comes out of Liverpool University and probably other, you know, red brick universities, but the amount of high quality research that comes out of there for a fraction of the investments that um, Cambridge get mm-hmm. is, is, is amazing. And I think you would expect world-class research to come out of Cambridge because they've got endless amounts of money and investment going into them. Mm-hmm. Liverpool and all the other red brick universities don't have the luxury of the, the you know, the, the investment that, um, you know, Oxford and Cambridge do. Mm-hmm. So I think it felt much more satisfying, actually, um, doing research out of Liverpool than it did in, in Cambridge. We, we, we produce... We punch well above our weight, I think, at, at the University of Liverpool. Yeah, I, I mean, from, from the past, you know, few few months, talking to people from many different departments and also seeing in, in the physics department as well, I 100% agree. And quite often, I think institutions can almost be written off because they're mm-hmm. not Oxbridge. But I know Liverpool is we are doing world-class research in, in all of us, particularly, I don't know so much about arts and humanities, but definitely mm-hmm. in STEM, every single department is, the, the, the stuff they're doing is absolutely amazing. And, and like you said, obviously, I don't know much about the money, but we, like, yeah, like you said, we don't have the luxury um, of just- Yeah, and, 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 and even the, you know, the infrastructure, the equipment exactly. that we have. I mean, people falling over themselves to give Oxford and, uh, Oxford and Cambridge money to, yeah. to do things. It's much harder to, to garner that income uh, at um, the red brick universities. Mm-hmm. And the papers that we publish and the work that's coming out of there and the, the impact that it's having, not just through the implication of uh, spin-out companies, but mm-hmm. things that have been taken up by other companies or things that have steered uh, government policy that have come out of Liverpool. You know, it's, it, it needs to be said that there's great stuff that's going out of there. So although my time in Cambridge, I don't regret, uh, I learned lots of things. I think Liverpool feels and felt still does a much happier place to, to, to live and work. Yeah, and I think so many students who graduate from Liverpool, and I'm, I'm one of those, you know, considering staying in Liverpool afterwards just because I've fallen in love with the city and the university. I don't want to leave. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, came, I came to live in Liverpool as a PhD student in 2004. And, and apart from, the, you know, those, that couple of years in, in Cambridge, I've lived here, you know, for what? How many years is that? 16, 16 yeah. years now. And I, I call it home, although I'm a, a proud uh, Yorkshire woman. Um, <laughs> Liverpool is my, my second home. And, you know, I feel very proud of, of living in a city like Liverpool. Definitely. And working in a, in a university like uh, the University of Liverpool. Yeah, I, I 
honestly totally agree it's it's a wonderful place to be so like you said from Cambridge you moved back to the University of Liverpool uh, mm-hmm. to complete another postdoctoral research position it's worth noting at this point that your research was still technically in chemistry so when mm-hmm. at, at what point in your career did you decide to start applying your chemistry background to 3d printing was it when you when you moved back to Liverpool yeah, so I moved back to Liverpool and I was a postdoc for a year with Professor Matt Rosinski, one of mm-hmm. our FRSs from the chemistry department here at Liverpool, mm-hmm. and carried on a similar sort of work as I was doing at Cambridge and, and also my, my PhD. But I really wanted to be an academic and I wanted to, to move away from the, the research area and see whether I could, uh, I've been reading about 3D printing and I thought, I wonder whether I could apply some of my knowledge and some of the things that I've been doing in, in ALD and transfer that to, to, to 3D printing. Mm-hmm. So again, which is the running theme, not a straightforward uh, progressing <laughs> test to academia. I, I finished my position as a, as a postdoc at Liverpool and that was half between chemistry, the Department of Chemistry, and material science and material science was in the school of engineering mm-hmm. so that's how I sort of moved into to engineering and my contract came to an end and I found myself unemployed uh, but they kept me on as a, an honorary researcher at the university mm-hmm. and I, I wrote a, a grant for um, a funding body called EPSRC which is one of the major engineering and physical yep. research councils of, of the UK but I couldn't put it in because I wasn't employed at the university and I wasn't a full-time academic so I uh, got one of my colleagues Professor Chris Sutcliffe who was working Mm -hmm. in 3D printing at the time said I've got this idea Chris you might think it's a bit bonkers but would you put it in for me and again it's about having those special people in your life that have seen something in you and support you Uh, and Chris turned around and said yeah I think that's a good idea let's put it in and so we got it Um, amazing and so I found myself as a postdoc there, but because I've written a grant and I could prove that we've, I could bring in money, that really helped me when a position came up at the, the School of Engineering as a, for a lectureship position. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, let's apply for it. And, uh, you know, here I am. So they took a punt on me and, <laughs> and employed me. And so that's how I became an academic and that's how I became an academic in the School of Engineering. And... I'd already started translating those um, chemistry knowledge to 3D printing and, it, and it's grown really from, from there. So I started with printing for 2D, what we would call 2D, so printed electronics, things mm-hmm. like RFID tags, sensors, but all on, on 2D substrates, so paper, plastic, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then again, another um, great conversations with Chris Sutcliffe from the School of Engineering. He, he's a, a world expert in, in laser metal manufacturing, 3D printing. So he does lots of things with, with powder beds. Mm-hmm. And we had a chat and said, oh, I wonder whether you could use your chemistry to, to bind our powders. And the rest is history. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we, we applied for some more grants. Incredibly lucky again that, you know, we got those. And we thought, you know, we might have something here. And so we applied for some, some IP to protect our, our research. And then we, we spun out Meta Additive last October. And, and things have just progressed from there, really. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, the, the work that you're doing is amazing. And also 
the the kind of your willingness to just face adversity and be like yeah you know what I, I I'm not technically employed but I'm just going to write this grant because I think it's a brilliant idea and I think that is it's just been shown it's been rewarded time and time again because you haven't given up and you have just kept pushing and I think that is such a an, an admirable trait and something that everyone should try and channel because yeah it, it, it was it was it was hard work you know those uh, fortnightly meetings in the Dole office weren't, <laughs> weren't great. <laughs> and they loved to call me Miss Black and not Dr. Black, even though the new was called Dr. Black. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, they, were, they were interesting. But again, it, it teaches your resilience. And, exactly. uh, and that's what you need. That's what you need. And, uh, and to, to keep on going because things happen. Yeah, life's um, tough. <laughs> yeah, it is, but life's also good, you know, and you've got to have the bad things to, to appreciate the good things as well. Exactly. And you've been at Liverpool ever since. Um, you became a lecturer in 2013. And alongside this incredible research, all of your, you know, the spin-off company, everything else that you do uh, that's amazing at Liverpool, you're also very involved in promoting women to study STEM subjects, um, having been chair of the fantastic Liverpool Women in Science and Engineering also known as LiveWise uh, Society. So as it stands at the moment, I think of, as of 2017, just under 20% of students studying engineering were female. Uh, and mm -hmm. you've touched on this as well, you know, in, in your academic career, kind of engineering not really being presented as, as an option that girls can study. So what do you think we can try and do to encourage more women to, to study STEM subjects and particularly engineering? It's about mindset and also role models play an uh, you know, important role here. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was employed as a, a lecturer back in 2013 at Liverpool, there were no female academics in the School of Engineering at Liverpool. Wow. Uh, there had been one, I think, maybe 10 years before that, and then they were all men. So when I was doing my PhD, didn't see female academics. There just weren't any. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I set up LibWise, because I thought, you know, this needs to change. Mm -hmm. and And also it wasn't just an engineering society because I thought, well, it's just going to be me sat in a room very lonely <laughs> on my own. Um, so, so how do we bring women into engineering? Uh, and that's why I opened it up to, to the other disciplines because I've come from a, a chemistry background. So mm -hmm. there must be other female chemists, physicists, biologists, you name it, sat there waiting, thinking actually engineering might be for, for me. And it's about educating the other disciplines, what, mm -hmm. what engineering does. I think Although you'd think the, the, the faculty of science and engineering would all talk to each other, they don't. And so many of our, my colleagues don't know what we, uh, we, we do, each of us do. Yeah. And they don't know what the School of Engineering does. And so that was my first thing is to say, okay, well, there might only be me in, 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 in Liverpool in engineering that's a, a woman, <laughs> but there must be others. And I, I'm, I'm really proud to be able to say that there are now 13 female academics in the School of Engineering. That's as a, amazing. You know, as a result of LiveWise, but also as a result of, of the, the great management that we, we've had in the, the School of Engineering over the, the, the last 10 years and, and seeing that things needed to be changed. And it's little things like the, the look of the department. Uh, I mean, when we when you used to walk in, it was it was a very male-dominated feel to, to the building. There was, mm -hmm. you know, um, engines. There were um, models of, of, you know, frigates and weapons and things like that and, and not only was that giving the wrong impression to say that you know women didn't do engineering it was also mm -hmm. not representative of what we did as researchers in the school of engineering there were so many great other things that, that the school of engineering does that isn't your stereotypical 
um, or classical engineering. Mm. And, and it's those non-stereotypical things like the bioengineering, the, the product design stuff, mm-hmm. that's much more, has much more of a, an attraction to, 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 to females. But once we solved that and said, oh, actually, that's not a true representation of what's going on, and creating role models. So that was a really important thing. We did, we did something through LiveWise where we had, we created little videos of our stories of academics throughout the School of Engineering, yes, but also yes. the, the, the um, science disciplines. Uh, and I think that's had one of the major impacts, really. It's one of the biggest impactful thing that we've done through LiveWise because it's something that can, can live on the internet there. Um, we can update it now and again, but so many people see it. And if you can see it, then you believe it. So if you've got female students who, against all the odds, have decided to do engineering and they sit there on a day-to-day basis only seeing um, male academics lecturing them, then it doesn't say to them that this is a job for you. And so that was the main thing that we needed to do is to show actually females can do any type of engineering and it is a job for you. Mm-hmm. And things start to change when you start bringing male and females to, to, together, they start behaving differently. And also mm-hmm. it was about calling out behavior that just wasn't acceptable to, to um, equality and diversity, you know, not just, not just females. There was a lot to, be, lot to be changed. And I think the School of Engineering has, has changed out of all recognition, for somebody who started as a 24-year-old, who is now, you know, now 40, uh, and, and has seen things in, 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 seen what it's like in the School of Engineering, it's changed an enormous amount. And that's, yeah. that's praise to the members of staff and the, the, the leadership of, of the school. So it's about, it's about creating those role models. It's about showing a true representation of what's going on, and not just the one that you think is stereotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I think universities can't work on their own. Funding bodies can't work on their own. Schools can't work on their own. This is something that needs to be joined up and we've, we've not got it right yet. Mm-hmm. And until we get it right, um, we're not gonna see the, the um, female students coming in to do engineering. So when I, when I do open days and I see the mums and dads come in and they say to me, you know, Oh, Dr. Black, can you, can you convince my daughter not to do engineering? And I'm like, what, not what? to do engineering? <laughs> oh, well, you know, we're really worried about will she, will she, how will she cope doing an engineering degree because it's a male-dominated era? Are there jobs for her to go? And, and that's what we're, we're up against. These are conversations that are not being held at the, the university or in schools. These are the conversations that are held at the breakfast table mm-hmm. behind closed doors because we're not having a true representation of, of, of what's, you know, what's, what's going on. And that needs to be things in, in the media, you know, the, 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 the newspapers, television, and, and we need positive role models to, to, to show what's possible. And the rest will, will do itself. You know, we, we call out behavior that's not acceptable and we, we provide role models so that the future generations can see that this is a, a world for them and this is a, an option for them. Yeah, and I think you're right, this work happens in universities 100%, but there's also, I think in high school, you know, in secondary schools, 
that's it's marrying up the kind of two places because obviously you're not going to get girls choosing engineering if it's not really promoted to them at high school Mm -hmm. um it's kind of people who've been in in a lucky situation where they might have been exposed to a cool bit of engineering or they've gone on an open day or a summer school or something and been like oh this is really fantastic but Mm -hmm. there's so many people who are missing that and and so it's just as important to, to have a greater focus on promoting engineering to to girls in secondary school as well as having those role models there so that when you know girls are studying engineering at degree level they sit they see you and go oh you know what oh I could do that as well you know there's so much she's done it so can I yeah, and I think but, but also black and ethnic minorities oh of course it's, it's, yes. it's far too too low in, in, in engineering and other disciplines but particularly mm-hmm. in engineering um, and the same thing needs to, to happen there they need to have role models to show that this this is um, a viable option for them. Definitely. I just think more diversity in general, I think. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's absolutely fantastic. And, and the work you're doing with LiveWise is, is incredible. Now, at the time of recording this episode, we are actually going into a lockdown tomorrow. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure how this is all going to affect your research. But nonetheless, what are the next steps for your work here at Liverpool? Good question. So hopefully it won't. So the government have said as from today that, you know, the um, universities and and colleges and schools can stay open. So my Mm -hmm. team are still uh, busily working away in the labs in a a, a safe way. So we're going to carry on as business as usual as much as we can do. Uh, I think COVID has been Mm -hmm. uh, really challenging, but also it's, it's given our team and, and others time to reflect on things, see what's important, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. different ways of doing things. But for us, it's to, to uh, take our technology that we've been developing it's, uh, and, and start to, to scale that up. So that's what we're doing through the, the Burnout Company. Mm-hmm. In terms of the research done at Liverpool, it's now starting to understand more of the fundamentals of our binders and how they're interacting with the powders and the and and what products we can produce and seeing whether we can control those. So we're doing some really fantastic work with one of my colleagues, Dr. Peter Green. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Engineering, but he does uh, AI and machine learning. So we're starting to see whether we can uh, embed sensors in our printers to collect data, which then he can look at and do all of these wonderful, what seems like magic to me sometimes, <laughs> um, machine learning algorithms to start to see whether we can we can cut out some of that research and develop work and, and speed it along. So to me, that's quite exciting. I think that's going to be something that will, will really help our technology move on to, to the next rung of the ladder, if you like. Definitely. I mean, that does sound like wizardry, um, but I'm excited to see <laughs> what, what you guys find, because I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And as, as well, just finally, really, to conclude, are there any other questions related to additive manufacturing you'd like to answer or, or are the problems that you think could be solved with novel 3D printing techniques? So I think some of the myths that need to be demyth about 3D printing <laughs> is that you can print anything. That's not that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I get, oh, you can print mobile phones. Again, not true. Um, <laughs> and that we'll have a 3D printer in every home. Again, not true. Uh, why would we need them? You know, you don't have a lathe or a, you know a milling machine in every every home. So why a 3D printer? So I think there's some of the myths and all the issues about people worrying about 3D printed guns. That's just <laughs> stop worrying about it. Uh, you don't need to worry about it. Um, it's not going to happen. Uh, the person who fires the gun will come off far worse. Um, <laughs> so 
yeah, probably some of those that I'd like to to demyth, if you like. Okay. Um, but I just think we need to see uh, 3D printing, additive manufacturing as a, a, another string to our bow in that sort of manufacturing world. It's not an either or. It's going to um, progress and bring out some great, weird and wonderful technologies that we're going to be able to develop with it. But uh, it, it won't, I don't think, take over the whole of manufacturing. It will certainly change. It's already changed the face of manufacturing. It will change that further. But it's going to be more of an augmentation with, with existing uh, manufacturing. Brilliant. I mean, Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Hearing about your career has been fascinating on so many levels and to hear you know all the challenges that you've overcome not even just overcome absolutely smashed so thank you so much for, yeah, for joining me today and, and for chatting to me about your truly incredible research thank you for sharing your Liverpool scientific pleasure pleasure Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Follow at Live Scientific on Instagram and Twitter to find out who I'm going to be talking to next and when the next episode is going to be released.